Hello and welcome to the 1201 podcast. I'm Callum Roper and today I am joined by Bradley Allsop. Hi folks. Ollie Walwyn. Hello everyone. And Mr. Callum Watt. Good afternoon. Hello there everyone. And so it's been a rather busy week in terms of politics, so we'll try and get through it as quickly as possible. Quite a lot going on outside of Lincoln, starting with the European Union and their actions, which were described as nuclear by some politicians, notably Arlene Foster coming out very strongly against them, where they triggered Article 16 of the European um, Withdrawal Agreement and the, the the post-Brexit trade deal, essentially cutting off um, our ability to bring vaccines in from Southern Ireland, the European Union, into Northern Ireland. Now, this does come with a caveat. Actually, this doesn't affect the ability of ourselves to bring vaccines into Northern Ireland. They come from mainland Britain, but it's very much a... Uh, an interesting move from the European Union as it caused much anger from the British side of the story. Now, 24 hours later, we then find that the European Union has U-turned, taken a very big U-turn and stepped down from this Article 16 action. So we're back to square one in this situation. But it does show how volatile the situation can get with the European Union, despite the fact we have left, despite the fact we have apparently got a, a good deal and uh, it very much puts the people of Northern Ireland in a very interesting situation indeed, potentially dangerous situation going forward. But what was your initial reaction to this, Bradley, when you saw about the Article 16 move from the European Union? Well, I mean, it's a bit embarrassing for them really, isn't it? You know, to, to have taken that move um, and then, you know, sort of almost immediately um, U-turned on it. Um, it it's almost a bit a bit Boris Johnson esque, isn't it? In, in the amount of U-turns we've seen from the UK government, um, it it was obviously the wrong thing to do. Um, it, it seems actually that the the one thing that our government's done quite well in this pandemic is actually get get the vaccines out um, and uh, ordered and out quite quickly. And it seems like the EU has, has not not been as good at that and not been as efficient at that. Um, I mean, it, it, it is in another sense, it also shows that, that there'll be ongoing problems with the arrangement we've now got for Northern Ireland. Um, I, I, don't, I doubt that this will be the only time there's an issue between um, the EU and the UK and Ireland. Um, it just shows how convoluted and unworkable it is in the long term, really. Um, so I, I, think, I think there'll probably be, be more, more issues um, to, to come. Hmm. And I suppose the uh, looking at the vaccination issue in, in the European Union, we know that they've got a very much a, uh, a collective approach to it, whereas the UK, we've gone alone. Um, apparently, we were offered to join the European Union vaccination programme, but decided to have our own vaccination task force, which is actually, as, as you rightly say, Bradley, is, is something that's been been vindicated it, it turns out it's a it's been a good move from the government which is rare to hear us on this program but we'll give them praise where praise is due ollie what was your um reaction to article 16 then was is this very much 
foreshadowing for future relations in terms of using what is a term of last resort so soon after leaving the European Union? I mean, yeah, I mean, when organising the deal, um, you know, it was such a such a focal point and there was so much controversy and focus on um, Northern Ireland protocol and whether Northern Ireland would have a different status, especially after um, Article 16 has been triggered um, when they're effectively back in the, the single market and the customs union. So, you know, Europe still has that kind of control um, over Northern Ireland in that respect. And yeah, I think it was a, an incredibly kind of inflammatory thing to do. Inflammatory, sorry. Um, but I just, I think it, it shows how, how desperate they were to, to um, you know, have some more control over the situation. But obviously it was condemned as a, as a very bad move. Um, I think it, it obviously relates um, to you know, the vaccine rollout um, in Europe a lot. Um, and I was looking at the, um, the the charts the other day to see, like, what the the tables were looking at and looking at... Um, sorry, I was looking at the tables the other day to see, like, which countries have ordered, like, <clears throat> the most doses of, of the vaccine. So in the UK, um, you know, with our population, I think it's 70 million, We've ordered 360 million doses of um, a, a type of vaccine from several different providers. Um, you know, it's it's one of the highest um, rates in the world. It's it's about four or five um, like different jabs per person in the UK. So it it, it kind of goes with the the isolationism, as I suppose that the Brexit has created, where we're only looking out for ourselves. Um, whereas, as you say, Europe has has chosen a very kind of collective um, approach to the vaccine rollout um, I think it just it goes further to uh, to deepen the divide in our relations with Europe really hmm. and it's, it is interesting um, some people have labeled the UK's approach to vaccines as hoarding um, obviously the, the big debate that's going to come in the next few months is how do lesser developed countries, gain access to that jab obviously the european union has its own approach and they're certainly not lesser developed but they still have problems so uh when we look at some of these jabs and the conditions they have to be kept in at minus 30 40 degrees celsius suddenly it looks like we've got a, a big problem on our hands when it comes to a worldwide distribution and whether the uk is going to be committed to that approach going forward bradley yeah, I, I think you're spot on, really. I mean, it is hoarding, isn't it? And, it, and it's not helpful um, to the global community. Um, and I, I think I, I was reading a book over Christmas, um, Andreas Milne, I think his name is. Um, but it, but he, he was talking about, you know, what, what, why is there such, was there such a swift um, re- response to COVID by world governments in the way that you don't see with something like climate change? And obviously, lots of the response in, in the UK in particular and, and other places like the US was, was very flawed. But you can't deny that there was like a massive government response and there's been enormous amounts of money spent on COVID in a relatively quick um, space of time, uh, period of time. Um, and one of the things he said was that um, if you'd have seen COVID in, infecting uh, developing countries and spreading quite rapidly in developing countries, 
Um, but Europe and the, and the US was largely untouched, as is the case with other things such as Ebola outbreaks and things. Then he said, you know, you would have seen a much less uh, dramatic response from, from from the world, basically. Um, and it, the fact that COVID, because, I think probably because of global interconnectedness and, and, and Europe and North America sort of being a hub for that, um, it, you know, it, COVID actually for, for once it was the it was the most developed countries that were hit the hardest at, at first by by COVID, and that's why it's become such a global uh, phenomenon, and and why there's been such a mass you know mustering of resources. Now that's relevant because you can actually see in about a year's time it might be the other way around, and and if if the rich countries have been able to hoard vaccines for themselves. Um, and and spend you know spend enormous sums of money and, and get their countries vaccinated, um, but poorer countries have not been able to do that. You, you could see COVID become uh, something that's prevalent in poorer countries and something that's a, 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 a minor concern once more in in bigger countries. And I I think I, you know I'm worried that we're maybe in a year or two's time that could be where we're at. And, and COVID and and for for all intents and purposes in, in this country and in the US and other places. We'll see COVID as something that happened in the past that we don't really need to worry about anymore. Whereas for poorer countries, it could still very much be a reality. Yeah, and I think that that's the biggest concern, really. I think going forward, I mean, the UK government said recently that we've invested hundreds of millions of pounds in foreign aid to help countries develop their vaccination programme where they can't afford to do so. But surely one of the best approaches we can take is to donate our spare vaccinations once we've got our population vaccinated instead of trying to sell them on perhaps how long how long think, does it last can we do that if we if we bought I, them in and transport them to the uk will they last long enough to do that i don't know that that's that's a very good question indeed but as as i understand the process works is we buy we buy them and then they're made on the production line and sent out as quickly as they come so in theory we've potentially bought jabs well we have bought jabs that have yet to be made so it's like going into uh, um pizza hut and ordering your pizza they haven't made the pizza yet but it's in it's going to go in the oven it's going to have its toppings added so if we use that analogy then you know why don't we donate the the order or the potential orders that we've got on standby to some more developing countries as an act of international solidarity because i think that that's the sort of global britain that I would like to see that we've got. Um, we t- we speak about this this global Britain. Well, perhaps actually a bit of international solidarity with some countries that are potentially going to be heavily impacted by COVID nineteen for years to come. You know that would that would actually stand to benefit ourselves and the international community. Bradley. Yeah, I, I think just another thing to say on that. I think. Potentially, really, the UK sort of looked out a little bit because, as I understand it, we we'd ordered quite large quantities of the vaccine before that. You know, all the clinical sort of trials and everything are fully finished. Um, I, I believe is the case. I'm not an expert on this, but you could quite easily see how these enormous amounts of vaccines we'd ordered, if some of them had been a bit crap, or or, or I think the part of the problem in the EU is that AstraZeneca's factory um, in the EU. Um, is having problems and that that's you know uh, slowing down production for the first quarter of the year and um, so you could you could easily see how actually if things had gone a little bit differently the enormous amount of vaccines we'd ordered would wouldn't necessarily wouldn't look like it's some sort of genius move and it, it would actually 
potentially look quite foolish if we'd ordered large amounts of vaccines that in the end hadn't worked um, or hadn't been as effective as, as other forms. So we, we did take a bit of a gamble on the vaccines we, we, we purchased and it sort of paid off a bit. Um, but but that is, you know, really that's partly luck, isn't it? I mean, fair enough that the ministers and the task force in charge might have had quite good preliminary data that they based that on. Um, I, I don't know. Um, but but there is an element of luck that we've done this well as well. And obviously, we as a, as a as a quite a rich country, we've got the resources to be able to gamble on things like that a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Callum, I'm keen to bring you in on this. Uh, what's your opinion on on the so-called vaccine hoarding? Is is it something that we we should be ashamed of? Is it something that we should praise? As the government has uh, sort of split its uh, its interest to ensure we get the best vaccines pro- possible, or uh, what should we do with the surplus vaccines? Obviously, it would be nice to see the latter in terms of donating them uh, across the rest of the world. Um, there is a point that obviously we are one of the hardest hit countries in the world, and that is obviously to do with the government as well. Um, so I, I guess they are sort of uh, having to mop up their own mistake. Um, I think it's a little bit too early to say whether the approach of buying lots of different vaccines uh, is going to work or not. Uh, certainly the number seems to be proliferating, doesn't it? Um I don't think that's necessarily the wrong approach, just because uh, this is a this is a very uh, unusual situation. Um, so, my uh, I would say my my answer to that is, uh, and I hope it don't sound too much like Yastama in this, is that is that actually it's not what they're doing isn't necessarily wrong, but there's a strong possibility that it might be. Well, that I think that's a, uh, a good way to end that debate on. I suppose over the coming months we'll see exactly how effective the approach is and whether the EU's approach will eventually be vindicated with their collective approach to procuring the vaccines. So moving on from the EU, as the UK has, the UK is now turning its eyes to the Trans-Pacific trade partnership. International Trade Secretary Liz Trust has, uh, has, has announced that we, we, we've applied to join this pact. Uh, it includes countries such as Canada and Australia and a number of other Pacific nations. And there is talks of the Joe Biden administration looking to apply to join the bloc as well. Now, this is an interesting approach um, from the UK, given the distance the UK is around 4,000 miles away from the Pacific region. But the bloc itself, in terms of trade between ourselves and these nations, was $111 billion last year. So that's quite a significant chunk of money. And it's uh, an interesting approach. I mean, I have my reservations, but obviously, post-Brexit, we're going to have to look for new trade deals. So is looking across to the other side of the world sensible when we have a perfectly good trade partnership or did have a perfectly good trade partnership on our doorstep, which was also our biggest customer? Ollie, I'll let you take over on this one. 
Well, <clears throat> I think it's... I think it's it's interesting. I don't think the the UK government were especially banking on um, Joe Biden um, getting in necessarily to be the next president because you know Boris Johnson has such a chummy chummy relationship with with Donald Trump and there was talks of um, a US trade deal which could um, effectively bail out the UK from from uh, and take over um, what almost like what we were trading with the EU would then be able to trade with, with the US and, you know, that would just further the kind of special relationship we're supposed to have with the US. But after Joe Biden got in, I think um, hopes hopes of that kind of faded away because, you know, uh, I think Joe Biden, he has got uh, Irish heritage and um, I think especially the, the issue of Northern Ireland protocol was especially t- touchy for him. Um, there's been remarks made by Boris Johnson when he was um, mayor of London, which pissed off uh, Obama, uh, the Obama administration. And, you know, there's a lot of things which haven't been forgotten, I would say. Um, so after hopes of that have kind of whittled away with the, the US, I think I think the UK are kind of desperate almost because, um, you know, we're looking for the next big thing, whether, whether that's, you know, 4,000 miles away it seems a bit insane to me to kind of stuff up the the relations we had um on our doorstep with the EU and and try and um you know arrange a trade deal with with Pacific nations um and I think we're gonna have a lot less bargaining power as well especially after um we didn't honor the um, withdrawal agreement with the EU. I don't know any nations are willing to kind of trade with us. I think that's massively damaged our international uh, reputation, really. Yeah, Bradley. I mean, the the issue that I don't think was ever really talked about enough in the the Brexit debate, in which is going to become increasingly obvious over the next couple of years, is that the the undemocratic argument around the EU, you know, the idea that the EU is is undemocratic, always struck me as absolutely bonkers because you've got to have trade relationships with other countries in the world, right? You you, you have to. In a modern world, you've got to, if you want your economy to flourish um, and if if you want to have any form of diplomatic relationship with, with different countries, you've got to have interactions with them. You've got to have trade agreements in place. You've got to have all sorts of agreements in place with them. Um, so, you know, the, what we'll now have, instead of people we elect directly to, to interface with these other countries, i.e. the EU, we would elect people to Parliament, um, which, which then is specifically devoted to the issue of how we get on and, and cooperate and, and work with our closest neighbours. Instead of that, we'll now have um, a series of trade deals um, pro- probably primarily negotiated by by civil servants, um, with with some oversight from elected ministers. But of course, we elect ministers. We don't actually elect any ministers. We 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 elect a government, um, which promises and pledges lots of various things. Um, and very rarely will any sort of trade deal or trade negotiation be be the top of the discussion in a general election. Um, and we also don't get to choose who these ministers are because they're appointed by by the prime minister, who we also don't choose actually. Um, so the idea that you know that arrangement of, of probably primarily civil servants plus um, people that are elected but not actually for that role and probably not with a democratic mandate for the trade deal they're going for is somehow a more democratic arrangement 
than um, directly electing people to a parliament whose sole job is to deal with issues that are, um, you know, around diplomacy and trade with our closest neighbours. The idea that that is more democratic or that somehow we are now more empowered in our relationships with other countries, to me, is just bonkers. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um because that, that's how our relationship with the EU will now develop and progress. If there's changes to, to our relationship with the EU, it won't it won't be that we will go and elect people to sit in a parliament and, and debate that anymore. It will be ministers um, working through civil servants will make changes to, to what that relationship is. Um, and I, I suppose the amount of public scrutiny that happens there is partly up to the government and, and partly up to the media. Um, but but I'm not exactly filled with hope. Um, that the, the, there'll be a huge amount of public input into those processes. Um, and of course, the more we enter into, you know, the, any any changes to relationships with other states in, in, in other parts of the world um, certainly isn't going to happen for any sort of uh, more democratic process either. So to me, the, sorry, I know I've waffled a lot there, but my point is, is that as flawed as the EU is and as flawed as its democratic structures are, it's still an enormous advance in terms of democracy and public oversight compared to any other sort of trade agreement or trade agree, uh, you know, relationship or diplomatic relationship. So I've always found that, that that idea that the EU was uniquely undemocratic or corrupt was just bizarre. I think that will come increasingly clear as we see these new trade agreements um, negotiated with countries that has very little in the way of public oversight or control. Yeah, and I'd like to pick up on that point of... Uh of oversight. The Labour Party, in response to this announcement from the government, said uh, they'll be obviously scrutinising the deal closely and they called for public oversight as well onto the onto the issue of the trade pack. The, the issue for me around that, around public scrutiny, is that we know that that can very much be led by the tabloid media. We know that very much can be misconstrued by by essentially fake news and social media um we can have something sold to us by one line of a trade deal that is actually hundreds if not thousands of pages long so just the 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 mammoth task of negotiating so many trade deals let alone joining another another block four thousand miles away to me seems like a an interesting way forward, as you rightly identified, Bradley, in terms of scrutiny. I don't think there's going to be much scrutiny, really, in terms of this uh, agreement and indeed many of the other agreements. It's a very detailed and precise negotiation that has to be carried out. And also, we largely rely on our civil service to do that. It's, It's very much the civil servants negotiate, the ministers sign off, and then we just have to put up with it until we have a change of government, really. Um, the interesting thing for me is, um, I don't know if anyone wanted to pick up on the, the issue of oversight, but one of the interesting things that was identified was our powers within that block. Um, there, there is some hints that perhaps we'll be a sort of partner as opposed to a member um, when we join as of yet, China has not yet joined the, the block, but a lot of British media wanted to pick up on the point as to whether we do not yet know whether we'll be able to veto China joining the block. Um, I don't know if anyone wanted to pick up on that as to whether we'll be an outside partner or an inside member. 
I think for me, it just emphasises the, the point I was making before. And uh, you know, it, it the the level of of control and oversight. The people, you know, not to use the term the people, because I sound like Nigel Farage or something like that. But you, you know what I mean. Um, you know, the amount of control or oversight we're going to get on this compared to what we potentially could have had um, in the EU. It, to me, it just seems less. It, it this is this is a less democratic way to do trade deals, but but no one's kicking off about it in the way they kicked off about the EU. Um, I I think yeah, as flawed as the EU was as a model for trying to reach a democratic set of of, of agreements between you know twenty seven other countries, um, it as flawed as it was, it it was better than other ways. It was more democratic and 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 better than than this sort of thing that we're doing now i think um so to, if anything we we should have been trying to replicate uh, something similar to the eu um without all the neoliberal sort of free market crap um but the idea of creating democratic institutions crafted around relationships with the states seems to me to be what we needed to do rather than withdraw from from the one we already had um so yeah, and and obviously, I mean, there's lots of concerns about being in, in trade deals with China. I think because of um, the the human rights abuses going on in China at the moment as well. Absolutely, and that would be one of the biggest concerns of many people with a progressive view, that or even people to the centre really have a lot of concerns about the human rights abuses in China, um, and also their ability to economically dominate such a bloc. Whereas in the EU, it was fairly balanced between some of the bigger states. There were obviously smaller states in there that had less of a voice. But France and Germany and Britain and Italy tended to, to take a lead, but at least cancel each other out in terms of, of their voices in the block. But now we've pulled out um, of that. We've, we've now put ourselves in an issue of isolationism. And now we're looking to blocks where we might not necessarily have the influence we once did. And I think the same could be said for a a, a trade block with um, any potential Commonwealth or, or former Commonwealth countries. Ollie. Well, I have a quite a cynical view on this, and I think what it relates to is is public opinion, which is so heavily controlled um, by the the billionaire you know press. And that is that it doesn't. It simply doesn't matter. All these issues about morality and and probably like worse trade deals than we had with the UK, and certainly less um, democratic influence, because you know we, we've taken back control and we've regained our, our sovereignty apparently. And it's just such lucid ideas, which doesn't really have any meaning. Um, and you know they have such a massive effect on people's opinions on this. Like, does anyone even care if we start trading with, with China? Even though they they're so, um, they they treat their minorities so disgustingly, and they 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 do so much like, so much worse than what the EU do, in my opinion. Um, and an issue that uh hasn't been raised yet, and I haven't heard any um comment on this in the press either. I do hope uh, I do see some. Um, but that is the um, environmental impact of having a trade deal with with the the Pacific bloc, which is um, you know sending our goods and receiving them from you know, over four thousand miles away by ship and by plane, both of which are extremely environmentally damaging at a time when we're supposed to be 
in a climate emergency, you know, there's a, a catastrophe going on and we're supposed to be, you know, working our way towards a, a zero carbon economy. Um, and I really hope I, I see something about that um, because it's driving me crazy how that there's so much talk about um, trade and what's next for the the UK, but there's no focus on environmentalism at all. Yeah, and to be fair, I didn't even think of that in terms of the distance. Um, just the impracticality of it means that large shipping and more aircraft being used for faster transportation is 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 going to be on the books if if we really are serious about engaging in this market. So going forward. I think that there's going to have to be a huge rethink of how we move goods around um, as to how we actually do that. That's going to protect the environment and cut back our CO2 emissions, because at least with the European Union, it was either a short ship shipping across the uh, the English Channel or the North Sea, or we could use the Euro Tunnel. So uh, that should be interesting going forward. Callum, I'm interested to get your perspective on the trade deal or potential trade deal. Do you think it's a good idea to be this to be our first big deal coming out of the European Union? Or is it something very much looking to replace the European Union, but will it actually get there? I, I mean, very few trade deals are going to be able to match up to, to, to what, what we had with the EU. Um, it'll be interesting to see going forward what what loss there is in terms of what our relationship with the EU is, um, it's gonna be a while before we can you know crunch the numbers on that. Um, I, I mean, look, it, having trade deals with other countries is, is certainly, a good, I think, yeah, that's a good thing. I, I do want, I do want to see us having trade deals with other countries around the world. So great if we can do that. Um, I, I think Ollie makes some good points um, about the environment, the, the environmental cost of what this will be. Um, and, and whether that's going to be a factor at all, actually, in these discussions that, that they have. Um, I imagine pro- prob- probably not, or if it is, it's going to be a, a minor issue that, that's, that takes place in those discussions. Um, but, you know, the, the, the government will love to trumpet the, these trade deals as much as they can and, and make as much of a song and dance about them as they can. Um, because they are under quite a bit of pressure to, to secure these deals because we were told we'd get them all and we'd get them all really easily once we left the EU. Um, but I, I'm sceptical as to their ability to, to be able to match up to, to um, some of the costs that we'll have under Brexit. Yeah. And just to wrap up this section, I just want a, a sentence from you each. How would you like to see this global Britain? Bradley? And for me, a global Britain would be a, a, a Britain that, um, you know, trumpets the idea of more foreign aid to countries to help them, um, developing countries to help them develop sustainably and to, to combat climate change. And also means taking our responsibilities in terms of climate change more seriously. So much more rapid decarbonisation so that other countries do actually have a little bit of leeway to still pollute whilst they're developing. But then also helping them with the technology and, and, and the resources they need to, to create that more sustainable development. Um, and, you know, trumpeting the idea of, of cancelling foreign debts um, and, and more foreign aid. To me, that is what a global Britain is. Ollie, what is your vision of a global Britain? 
I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd like to echo what Bradley just said. I think that sounds, you know, amazing. Um, I'm highly skeptical on its its doability in the current political climate, but you know, I'd love to see a, a collective Britain which cares more about um, people than profit, and it it treats um, you know all its minorities kind of equally. It doesn't have um, these hostile immigration systems, which we're we're coming on to talk to you next. Um, yeah, that would be that would be amazing for me. And the point about environmentalism as well, I think that's something which which should be dealt with as a collective um, by countries, which is what we which Bradley was saying earlier about um, you know treating the the climate emergency with the same urgency that we've treated um, COVID with. That would be amazing. Finally, Callum, what's your vision of a global Britain? A global Britain, um, <laughs> I think one that um, doesn't isn't seeking to um, become the uh, Singapore of uh, of uh, of Europe uh, in the worst way possible. So there we go. I think there's a uh, a nice raft of different ideas there but all sharing that same value of very much a progressive and outward looking global britain so our final story uh, it was alluded to just there uh talking about our treatment of migrants namely asylum seekers in this country so if you've seen some of the news recently there has been a lot of talk about folkestone and a um, and, and a former army barracks that is now being used to house refugees called Napier Barracks. Um, and, he, well, a couple of days ago, a fire broke out in the migrant camp. Hundreds of people were housed there in what has been described as very poor conditions. Um, charities such as Care for Calais saying that it's, it's very cold, bathrooms uh, don't have proper sanitation in there um people also very worried about covid because of the close conditions they're living in and they're not getting the right protection or ppe as everyone else is so it seems very much a very poorly uh contained camp if we want to call it that it, it seems like it's it's not very good for people's human rights and we have to remember these are asylum seekers uh the government has said that they provide asylum seekers with safe, warm, COVID-secure, suitable accommodation where they receive three meals a day whilst their claims are being processed. But it seems very much that this is not the case. Uh, there was a protest a few weeks ago where over 100 asylum seekers walked out of the barracks for an hour and they protested. And it seems to me that the situation here is atrocious. Now, the reaction to the fire, which we don't quite yet know how it started um, by some of the right-wing media, is that it's been labelled as a riot, implying that this is some sort of prison camp. Well, it does appear so, but the criminalisation of refugees, making them to seem like they're not welcome and they're somehow acting illegally when actually in international law their status is protected is absolutely outrageous. So I wanted to open out the conversation here, and this is a good opportunity for us to discuss our approach to not just migrants, but refugees too in this country, because we do have a 
record, we'll say, of mistreatment of migrants, mistreatment of refugees and putting them in some rather horrid conditions. Ollie, what's your take on this? Um, I mean, just reading some of the, the stories by some of the people that have been uh, at the the camps in, in Folkestone, um, it, it sounds, you know, horrible. And I think it's just an extension of um, the, this hostile environment which has been created um, by the Home Secretaries uh, over the past few years, where, um, you know, immigrants are, are treated as, as subhuman almost and people that are wanting to claim asylum are kept in these these places um you know in really terrible conditions where there's you know, 34 people to to one toilet and no one has any privacy uh, you can't do anything without anyone else knowing it and it's just it just sounds horrible really and it as absolutely as you say it's uh, it's a method of of deterring people to want to come to this country as if as if we can even uh, afford not to let these um you know mostly young people um with you know probably very hard working tendencies come to this country at a time where um you know we've got a, an nhs crisis and a and a looming jobs crisis um and it's I, I really i hate the the way that immigration is kind of demonized in this country um and i i, I really hope we realize our mistakes um in that because you know they really need to be seen as as the benefit as they are really absolutely and i think the the interesting argument has always been for me how people have to justify human existence in this country just because of their economic uh, value so whether that will let in certain immigrants because they can contribute in the unskilled sector or they can become a a nurse or they they have certain skills as in certain professions but the continual demonization of people seem to have no economic value is always the thing that frustrates me the most the fact that a human life is only as valuable as their ability to contribute to the economy but if we're going to go down those lines actually it's it's a known fact that migrants and refugees contribute more in tax than the ordinary british person because actually you rightly identified ollie how hard they work because they understand that they've been given a a home and they've been given a chance to rebuild their lives so i think that that's that's always an interesting approach but if that's the terms that we're arguing on then so be it bradley what's your take on our treatment of migrants in this country uh, well we treat them like shit don't we <laughs> just just you know um i agree with everything you, you and ollie have said i think um it's depressing. It's probably only likely to get worse um, in in the Brexit era, but it's been a problem for a long time. You know, this this country um, quite uniquely, actually. Um, you could probably think of the US in a, in a similar way, um, although historically different. But we, you know, this country has been built by migrants. It, it it survives because of migrants. If you look at the NHS, you know, any public institution really. Um, the, the UK is, is has been built by migrants in in every sense of the word, um, yet we we still treat them like crap, um, and it, and it's frustrating. I think, undeniably, Brexit was partly fueled by by some some of that, um, and the only way really you stop 
uh, you, you stop the right wing or the far right being able to use immigration and, and fears of the other to, to gain political capital. The only way you stop that is by offering an alternate story about why people are struggling in their lives. Um, and that and that story is is the failings of capitalism and, and the inequality in our society. So until we offer that, um, then you know it, it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep being a problem in this country. Absolutely, and I think the uh, that's the 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 alternate um, narrative is is something that I feel that the left and the the Labour Party and, and progressives in this country have failed to really promote it's it's very much we've we've tried to fight back against the right by saying well you know that as i said earlier about arguing about their economic worth of, of migrants but actually i think changing the terms because we all know that it's a neoliberal standpoint where you argue about somebody's worth by the value they contribute to an economy actually i think we know that people's contributions are actually so much more than that and just being able to give somebody a, a different opportunity a new opportunity in a country that's safe and it well should be safe in a country that should look after them is so important and i think that that's certainly a value we all share i just also want to open this out into a therefore into a debate about the labor party's role in this because there, there has been a tendency within the labor party to shift back onto the arguments of the right to please people that are skeptical of immigration uh, that don't like immigrants in big numbers coming to this country we can see it under the blair years uh, constant commitments to cutting immigration so where does the labor party sit now do we feel in this going forward ollie well i imagine it was um it had a lot um, a different kind of perspective on this while um, the humanitarian and socialist Jeremy Corbyn was in charge of the Labour Party. Um, you know, he, he, they actually had policies on immigration and they actually actually decided a, a point of view um, and policies to do with immigration. Whereas Keir Starmer, it's it's extremely i would say in this political climate it's it's extremely unpopular to to um you know be advocating for immigrants and, and asylum seekers um so you know he's been completely quiet i don't know i don't know anything that he thinks about um immigration because he just doesn't put his points of view out there and he remains very quiet um about it because if he was very vocal about it i think um you know, he'd be compared to Jeremy Corbyn, and and he's increasingly trying to distance himself from the the previous leadership. Um, so it's it's really difficult because obviously the Labour Party should be, you know, should be very vocal about this and should be vocal about any kind of um, humanitarian issues which um, are affecting minorities anywhere in the world. But if we can't even um, look after the people, the very small amount of people, as you said, um, in comparison to countries like Germany and France, if we can't even, um, you know, treat them very well and, and you know, treat them like humans and not just like, um, you know, leeches as, as they're described in the, in, the, in the Tory press, then it's very concerning because we can't criticise um, 
humanitarian issues um, across the world, uh, and especially in China. Absolutely. And I think that uh, I'd like to get Bradley's take on this as somebody that's done campaigning and canvassing for the Labour Party in Lincoln and and probably in other areas of, of the country too. How do you tackle issues of immigration on the doorstep when people if, if it comes up at all do you do you quote them the policy or do you try and take the moral high ground and actually argue for these people Bradley well yeah so I, I suppose it depends on, on, on the context and how it comes up because I, I I always think there's two people there's two sorts of people that that, that bash migrants that there, there are um, the there's the people that are, that are just racist, um, and and you you're probably not really going to be able to, to to do anything about those people, um, or you know it's it's or it's a very you know it's a long term process that's going to take a while that you're not going to be able to fix in a, in a five minute chat on the doorstep, um, so you know I think if I've identified one of them, I'm like well you're probably not going to be made for the Labour Party, um, and and there's probably not much I can do here. Here's some policies I think are really good, but I'm I'm not going to try and you know drag you out of decades of racism that you've probably had. But then I think there's another group of people, and I I hope that the this is a larger group of people, in that they have they they look at you know their area, they look at the economy, they look at their wages, they look at their the, the sense of the level of control they have over their lives, uh, they look at the gross inequality in our country. Um, and somewhere along the line, someone somehow has said something to them that leads them to, to feel like immigrants and or, or large-scale immigration, um, whatever that means, um, in is in some way part of the problem, if not the whole of the, of the problem. And I think they, those people, you know, there are obviously questions about why they feel like they've settled on migrants as, as the problem in the first place. But I feel like at least you can have a conversation with those people and um, you know so so i i had someone i was campaigning i think probably in 2017 and they, they were talking about um they were talking about there not being many jobs um or, or something something like that and, and i so i started trying to highlight what i thought were really good progressive economic policies that labor had at the time so i was talking about the living wage talking about investment in, in the local economy um, to, to create more jobs, you know, that that sort of thing. So trying to say, right, okay, so I think there's probably a, a deeper issue going on here than just migrants. Um, I, I'm going to try and talk about how we're going to tackle that deeper cause, you know, which which is economic stagnation, um, yeah, lack of power in the workplace, gross inequality, all that sort of stuff. Let's talk about what Labour can do about those things. Um, and then, if your response still is, which it which it was, <laughs> unfortunately in this instance, if your response then still is, yeah, but I want to get rid of those immigrants, then at that point you're like, okay, well you're, you're probably just racist then. Um, there's, there's probably not much more I can do to convince you. Um, so so yeah, so for me, it's it's about trying uh, to to convince people that that migration isn't the problem, but actually there are these other it's about a competing narrative isn't it migration is is a very simple narrative that ukip and, and the like can, can and a lot lots of people in the tory party even some people in the labor party um can sell it's a very simple easy to understand narrative it's complete bollocks but it's a very easy to understand narrative so if the left's going to counter it we need to have our own true you know we, we, 
shouldn't lie to people. It should be an accurate narrative, but it needs to be an easily understood narrative as well. Um, and I think the best route to that is 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 around how we talk about um, the, the power that the very rich have and, and, and how inequality causes so many problems in society that are really well documented and researched. Um, and, and how the focus should be on reducing inequality and taking back powers for workers in the workplace rather than blaming someone because they were born in a different country. I think that that's a, a thorough uh, approach there. So anyone listening that does end up campaigning, probably not in this coming election because we won't be allowed on doorsteps, but if you telephone campaign, that's some great tips there for you. Um, and just, just to close up, really, just a last point, really, is this talking about a narrative so i spoke about the narrative around the uh the, the folkestone camp and the the concerns around that but the, a lot of the concerns are coming from the right-wing media that are actually saying that it's it's somehow the migrants fault for the situation they find themselves in it's refugees own fault um that they're they're in poor conditions and they're uh, living living so closely together and and tens of tens and tens of them if not hundreds of them uh getting covid19 whilst in these camps so really it, it's not just on the doorsteps and in general conversation but also in the media i think that that's the the next big battleground that the left has to really tackle and obviously we're trying to do that here in in terms of our podcast in terms of our output as a, as a blog as well in terms of changing that narrative away from victimizing minorities and blaming them for the problems that are actually created by a system failing people but obviously overcoming that that mountain is is the difficult thing with um what is it gb news has been set up which has been touted as the equivalent of fox news within the uk led by a number of right-wing figures and obviously the uh the tabloid print media is is also heavily skewed to the traditional um migrant bashing narrative so really ollie are we gonna be able to overcome that that mountain obviously press num press readership has gone down but now people get their news from social media and from uh some of these news channels that are being set up left, right and centre? Well, um, you know, it's con- extremely concerning, especially the the bit that you mentioned about GB News. Um, you know, Rupert Murdoch already has like a, such a, a hold on, on the press in the UK, but also in Australia and America as well. Um, it's something um, Jeremy Corbyn's project for peace and justice is campaigning for. Um, to you know, not allow them to have such uh, ownership over the media, where it's it's almost like a a, ma- a majority of, of press in this country is is owned by, um, you know, media barons really. Um, but yeah, it's something we definitely need to oppose and and deal with as a society because even though, as you say, you know, press readership is going down, um, they're gonna start looking towards um, you know, the the ways which which people communicate now and in, in the digital age um so you know they'll be campaigning on and there were last election as well they'll be campaigning on facebook and 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 twitter and these things we live our lives through um and it's gonna equate to you know more scandals really like like what happened with um cambridge analytica 
um, and all the kind of conspiracy con- surrounding um, what, what's going on there, um, because they've been a part of, um, you know, party um, kind of campaigning in in the UK and in America, but also around the world. And it, it's con- extremely concerning that they are able to have um, this kind of hold over over our media, which which you know it does shape public opinion opinion to to an extent, um, really. Mm, absolutely and that is the mountain we have to overcome if we are to change the narrative um see if we can get callum in on this uh how do we overcome the media uh barons as as ollie describes it, and i think very accurately describes and when uh very much progressive media tends to be funded by the grassroots it tends to have a lot less money behind it because of that and it also has less of a readership until it starts to build up that momentum. It doesn't have the grandiose titles of, of the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or the Times. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think I think you're right to highlight. You know, is it GB News they're calling themselves, and um, and I, th- I think that they are worrying developments, aren't they? To to see how uh, how the the UK press landscape could be shifted even further to the right over, over the next 10 years or so um, if the left doesn't get his act together um, and, and all the implications that will have for, for debates uh, around migration but, but lots of other things as well such as the economy as well um, so yeah it, it is scary I think I think we we are in a better place actually I think than, than we were five years ago I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that now um, but I think we have seen a bit of a flourishing of, of left media in the UK since Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, you know, you could, um, not not that I necessarily recommend all of them. I mean, I think Navarra really is pretty good, actually. Um, I listen to their podcast a lot, um, and and some of their articles that they're, they're producing more blog content now than they used to as well. Um, and there are others, you know, like Squatbox and the rest of it. I think some of the other stuff that's that's developed is maybe not as as um, as, as detailed as we would always like it. Um, but but in general, uh, you know, I think the left media landscape is better better than it was, uh, much better than it was five, five six years ago. Um, of course, the problem we always face is that um, the right wing press, which is the case of GB News and others, is that they're they're going to have much easier access to large pots of money um, quicker than, than the left is because they, they can get backed by, by millionaires and billionaires and, and those that have a vested interest in, in maintaining the status quo. Um, so I suppose the first thing is 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 for for people listening is is to donate actually to to media and share share content from from left media sites. Um, if you if you have a particular skill at writing or graphic design or whatever it is, get involved and help out a media site. Um, set up a donation um, to a media site. So Navara Media sort of almost treat it like a union, and I, I always see it like a like a union donation now um, to a media site because it's just another. It's another part of the battle, isn't it? It's, a, it's another train of the battle. So, Navarra Media recommend um, uh, uh, an hour, an hour's wage a month, which which is roughly, I think, traditionally what our union membership would be. Um, so, so there's that, and I think, I think, I think people on the left, we we need to we need to think and be clever about how we frame this, don't we? It's it's going back to this idea of a narrative again. We we need to be telling comparison. Com- 
compelling stories to, to people about what's going on in the world and explaining what's happening in the world and, and, and attaching that to the right policy asks at the right time. And I think the problem we had in, in 2019, I, I think the manifesto we had was fantastic and a lot of the policies we put forward were fantastic. But I think a, a big problem was that it, it almost seemed a bit scattergun. Um, which in fairness, I, I didn't really pick up on at the time. And when new announcements came out, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I say that's because I, I'm absorbed in lefty stuff, so I could see how these things fit together, but but not everyone can um, immediately, and, and you have to be able to, to, to choose the right policies to push at the right time and, and the right narrative that, that ties all that together. So, um, yeah, I, that's not really a grand strategy for, for, for taking on uh, the, the Daily Mail and GB News, I know, um, but it, it's about supporting the lefty media where you can and, and and about all of us being clever about how how we message things and and and, and how we tell stories about things. Fantastic. On that note, I think we'll wrap up. I think that's a positive note to take forward going forward as a podcast and as a movement, really. So it's a thank you from me. Stay safe as always. A thank you from Bradley Orsop. Thanks, folks. Stay safe. A goodbye from Ollie Woolwyn. Thank you, everyone. Take care now. And a goodbye from Callum Watt. And we will see you very soon indeed. <laughs>